Say goodbye to inappropriate podcast moments with the Kenko Mountaineer. The Kenko Mountaineer sorts your archive nostalgia podcast into order of profanity, drunkenness, factual inaccuracy, and more. Product only works with the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour podcast. Tired of accidentally selecting a sweary podcast when there were young children in the car? That's all solved with the Kenko Mountaineer. Embarrassed by podcast hosts boozing on air like it's big and clever? Put an end to it with the Kenko Mountaineer. Worried your boss will find out you listen to a show where the hosts can't carry out even the most basic factual research into actors' names and TV episode air dates? Shut them right up with the Kenko Mountaineer. Buy your Kenko Mountaineer today from the special interest aisle in your nearest Wilson Walson. Battery sold separately. The Kenko Mountaineer only works with the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour podcast. The Kenko Company has nothing to do with the Kenko Company. Subscription required. Product not guaranteed. And that's a guarantee. On tonight's Bleakwood podcast. Everyone must register. I expect your teacher has a register every morning to see how many of you are present in the class. They did one in Shepherd's Bush this morning. I was here, on me own, again. <laughs> and he also sings the bit at the end that was never used in schools because it involved a C7 chord, which most school guitarists couldn't play. There we go. That's that's why we have him on. Just boils my piss. I think this rendition of the song is absolutely fucking superb. Or at least it would be if the sound mixer hadn't put those fucking bells back in the mix. <laughs> Ring out those bells tonight, torn fucking deaf, <laughs> torn fucking deaf. You know. Can I say that that person who's on the donkey, what what a weird position, and it's just the way they're sat. They look like, right, imagine a slack nutcracker in brown trousers riding on an animal. That's what it looked like to me. A slack nutcracker. <laughs> Are you all right? Hello and welcome to the first of three of the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour Christmas specials. I'm Dr Velvet. I'm Blackout. And we're here to feast our eyes on festive phenomenon from the flatter squarer tube. Yes, hello you. Thanks for joining us for our casual cultural critique of Christmas television where Britain's best-loved battle axe is never far from our minds because here all bells jingle up the mountain. If you go over to PeggyMountPod.com, info and links for the episodes we're discussing is in the show notes there. You can find us on the socials, get in touch to wish us a merry one, or suggest recipes for festive cocktails. And since it is the Christmas season, it wouldn't be the same if we weren't joined by our partner in pedantry, Mr Ozzy Bognops. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How there we go. You tied felicitations to you, sir. And to Are you, you right? I am very well tickety-boo and a half, as I believe the phrase goes. Good, good, good. Now, I do know you will be staying over the festive period, so just put your sleeping bag down on the barum. Can I not put it in the hall cupboard, please? Well, you can if you wish, yes. That's fine. That's fine. So before we spank the production budget on a largely unnecessary location shoot when stock footage would probably have done, gentlemen, I've got to ask, what are we drinking? I mean, I've decided to put in a bit of effort and add a touch of class to the proceedings, OK? Uh-huh. So my intention is to make a different Christmas cocktail for each festive episode. Oh, OK. That's what's going to happen here. Oh, aha, oh, aha. All of these recipes hail from some of the finer drinking establishments in our capital city. Don't you know? Good Lord. Yes, absolutely. And tonight's is called a Christmas pudding hard shake. I kid thee not. Well, I've actually had one of those. They do tend to put the card of those in phone boxes in London as well. <laughs> Where do you think I got it? Anyway. Ah, there we are. So, 25ml of Bacardi spiced rum, 25ml of sherry, 10ml of gingerbread syrup and some orange zest. Along with... Type 2 diabetes. Along with... Brace yourself for two scoops of vanilla ice cream. There Good you go. Grief. OK. And it's utterly beautiful. And yourself, Ozzy? Port. <laughs> I had a feeling. <laughs> we expect nothing less. I had a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> Blackout. Tis the season to drink port. Well it, well, it really is. I mean, if you're going to drink it at any time of the year. Uh, Blackout, are you equally as predictable or not? Well, I'm not quite into the festive feeling just yet, so I'm going to start with a bottle of Mr. Scrooge Winter Ale. Ah, nice. I bet it's a dark ale, is it? I can't tell. The bottle's brown. All right. Drinks in hand, and so on to the first of our celebratory sittings. And for those of a certain age, allow the mists of time to wrap around you and lose yourself in the ever-entertaining yet educational world of BBC schools where back in the day we were told that you don't have to do anything, you don't have to say anything. Just watch. 
Oh, that's nice. That's really nice. Yes, watch. This was an educational programme for the younger end of the televisual demographic, which ran on BBC One from 1967 and lasted in various guises until the late 1990s. It covered a mix of subjects and topics, presented in a structured but informal straight-to-camera setting. As it's the season tonight, we've watched a pair of episodes from December 1979, in which presenters Louise Hull-Taylor and James Earl Adair bring us the story of the Nativity, and 50% of the programme is even filmed where it all happened. That's a bit like me every time I'm in London pointing out Pope's and Guy Ritchie films. Mind you, before we start, I have to say, Louise Hull-Taylor, childhood crush, what more can I say? I thought the same back in the day. Absolutely. Well, that makes three of us, because my memory of Louise Hotel is that, like, she she was the cool one, very hot, in sort of a slightly mumsy way, but, you know, if you're that age, that's fine. I'm watching it now, and she seems a bit posh, doesn't she? She's dressed like a little air hostess, if we're honest. It's the scarf that does it. And I, yes. I've yeah. noticed that she is actually an air steward. That is the only way they managed to crack the budget. This makes absolute Indeed. sense, right? Because she's a little bit too prim. She's smiling at yeah. the camera, but you know for a fact that she could turn on a sixpence and just start bollocking you any second. God, yes. She'd give you the biggest bollocking of your life. Absolutely. in a, on, Yeah, in a heartbeat, <laughs> without a doubt. And there's something... And I have a feeling why she... She's got the camera, uh, camera team probably quite scared of her because let's face it yes she's wearing a scarf but she's wearing it over a collar and it's bloody windy because her hair keeps getting in her mouth over her collar and it gives her that air of importance despite the fact that as i say the reason they're across there they've managed to get round the budget by putting her as an air hostess on the actual flight um it was a case of louise crack on vodka and tonic in g58 economy this is this is this is how we got here. But before we get into this, one of the most one of the most important questions. I mean, do we all remember watching Watch back in the day? Absolutely. I think we do. Did your school have a television room like ours did? And the TV it was did. wheeled in on that bloody pole? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The brown cabinet with the yep. sort of, you know, that opened up fully to keep the sun out, despite the fact the curtains were shut anyway. So it was like there was lots of... Um, quiet, surreptitious punching and dead legs going on yes. whilst we all sat cross-legged <laughs> waiting for the thing to start. Yes. And the thing I say is from the clip, presumably the details of which will be in the show notes, um, is that the music that they play before Watch starts has actually more character than the programme itself. There you go. <laughs> Speaking of which, my overriding memory of Watch uh-huh. is that signature tune. Oh, now, it was probably around some time in 1976 when I first heard it. It's only 17 seconds long, and the yep. bastard thing is still playing in my head. It doesn't have an ending. It just loops until the heat death of the universe. Flute loops. Flute loops. That's what this is. Uh-huh. It just it does. It just goes <laughs> on and on. And the thing is, the, the, it was released. You know, there was a few... Um, BBC Children's Themes released on an LP in about 84, 85. This was on it. And if you ever find a copy of it and you play the theme to watch called Prima Ballerina by Ernest Luff, mm-hmm. if you actually get halfway through it when it's going round for the second week, <laughs> some pushes a fader and all of a sudden, it goes loud! <laughs> I think this is actually one of the tracks they play to prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. Yes. <laughs> What's slowly getting louder and louder until eventually you like your head's bleeding out of your hair follicles. Yeah. It's something else. It really is something else. And uh, bless the BBC, they've put visuals to it for the title sequence. Now, to me, yep. this was the video, this was the demo video for Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer. Precisely All this. stop-motion plasticine and yes. concepts. Yes. That's what this is. Yes. It is. But isn't it lovely? There's something about it that I loved that, you know, it was always relevant. It was always relevant to the programme. It was very cleverly done, mm. and yet they had about... Well, they had four colours, five colours of um, plasticine that spelt out the words watch. Then all of a sudden, 650 fucking colours to make anything you want that could make the hair wane out of it. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. 
mind you, I am I am still of the opinion the reason going back to Louise Hall Taylor, the reason for my crush was not because of watch initially, but was for the fact that at the time she had advertised Twix. And she played a sexy girl who appeared to share this man's Twix. And that's not a euphemism. Uh, and I have a feeling sharing the Twix was possibly the reason, besides the air hostessery, that got her to Bethlehem in the first place. Could well have been. I will say one thing for the cameramen, and this is a this is a shout-out to any Doctor Who listener. Um, they do a long shot of Bethlehem, and that looks like an effect from an episode called The Pirate Planet. <laughs> Look it up. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's very good. Now, Louise is having a grand old time across in The Bethlehems. Mine James is in the studio and he's absolutely fucking boiling. Well, oh I. We've got to, we've we've got to put this in context of how Louise frames this. And I've come out here to show you where it all happened. James is back at the studio and he's going to start the story off. The absolute fucking glee in her voice. Yes. <laughs> as yes. she lets everyone know <laughs> that there was only enough in the pot to send one presenter on a week-long jolly in the sun and she got the bastard. <laughs> You had you had to you had to literally board up your screen to stop the smugness oozing through it, didn't you? Yes. Totally. She yeah, is fucking absolutely. delighted to be there. And he's at a point where he could literally quite happily smash the studio up with his own face out of pure fucking temper. Yeah. You can see it in his face. Yep, he's he's stuck back in television centre, making models that are only marginally less sturdy than the set he's got to work on. Normally, yeah. Cardboard cutouts are a way of sort of crafting that the audience at home can try and replicate. Here, it's because uh-huh. there's no money left. I like it when he says... Round this side are the people who live here. Their names are Joseph and Mary, and they're just about to start off on a five-day journey. Now, Mary's not very happy about this. With an expression which adds, I know how she feels. I'd love to fuck off to Bethlehem for five days, me. That'd be mint, <laughs> but no, I'm here on my own making the rest of the programme. I'm starting yep. and stopping the cameras myself, you know. <laughs> Yes, he is. Yes, yep. he is. He really is. Question. How involved did your school get with Watch? I'll tell you why I'm asking this, because my school had all the teacher's notes to go with it, because we made those houses. Oh, really? Yes, ah, okay. yes, we made those. And the figures. We didn't get that involved. We ended up using the same crib, which we'll come to in a bit. Um, we used the same crib that you know we used, probably had been there since the Iron Age. Right. Um, but we did do... We did have a go at doing... Um, shepherds and wise men and things on the strip of paper you pull along mm-hmm. but we didn't have plasticine so they always fell over until you got gloy gum all over the bloody place and picked it off the spatulas and then they would stay on but then the strip would get bent and it would get a crease in it and that would be it yeah so it was a, it wasn't a very merry christmas it was a fucking happy new year anyway we used to have plasticine at our school we were allowed it once upon a time until gail bostock ate it <laughs> what do you do what do you do <laughs> I do like how, as well as speaking to the audience, James is very aware that it's actually going out in a school environment as well. Everyone must register. I expect your teacher has a register every morning to see how many of you are present in the class. They did one in Shepherd's Bush this morning. I was here, on me own, again. <laughs> Dressed in me pyjamas. I mean, you know, he's, I think he's sleeping in the studio and all. Yes, he Look is. at that shirt. Yes, yes, Bloody he is. Hell. Now, this isn't a digger watch, specifically, because it comes up all the time with this story. But since it's mentioned, how come? Now, to make the counting easier, everybody had to go back to the place where they'd been born. Why? Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're trying to reduce the population estimate by excluding disabled people who can't get around the desert with no bastard transport, how does this make any fucking sense? Well, you see, as Louise quite rightly pointed out, donkeys are still used here, yeah, in many forms. Um including being eaten, I reckon, by the look of some of them. They look a bit emaciated. You know, we don't go into anything else to do with donkeys at this point because we're back to Louise and the camera crew. Anyway. She's back in Bethlehem, nearly breaking both ankles, walking over a dirt track in wedge heels, for fuck's sake. Has anyone done a risk assessment on this? Can I say that that person who's on the donkey, what what a weird position, and it's just the way they're sat. They look like... Right, imagine a slack nutcracker in brown trousers riding on an animal. <laughs> That's what it looked like to me. A slack nutcracker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Yes. <laughs> Lovely. Um, but interestingly, my, my heart goes out to the two the two guys playing the extras, playing Joseph and Mary, because... 
the, basically the camera crew said, all right, we'd like you to go up and down this street mm-hmm. for basically until it's dark. I'm not sure they've been told um, they're being and, filmed. And <laughs> I think the dress might have given them away because when you see the modern type Bethlehem, yeah, all of a sudden it's like, all right, okay. Yeah, yeah. This, this modern Bethlehem, that little shot we get with all the TV aerials, it looks like Bespin Cloud City. What's going on here? <laughs> Well, it's back to what you were saying about Doctor Who. The thing is that maybe they were just getting sort of source material to use as reference points for stuff back home. You know, it was all the BBC were always after trying to get the second deal on something. Mm-hmm. Like I reckon they built a manor house for to the manor born, which we'll come to in a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, I reckon it's just it's it's ulterior motives the whole time. You know, oh, we'll get some stock footage of Bethlehem because that'll be geek great. Yep. Definitely. When we tr- come to tell the story again, and we put somebody over it in green screen, like Noel Gordon or something, singing "Count Your Blessings One by One" or something. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I am loving though his little his little figures that he's using, James, in the studio. I am enjoying them. Yes, I have a note about this. Um, they're all of the figures, very clever. You know, a nice idea, and they make it very simple to make them a bit more three dimensional. It's folded card, but basically. Every fucking thing is made of folded card. There are more folds than a game of strip poker with no letters. I mean, it's... I'm making a donkey for Mary to help her on her way. I'm cutting the legs and the body out of a piece of folded card. I'm doing that. Me. Because there's no one else here to do it. It's just fucking me. And my vitamin D deficiency crying in the studio lights, which I also have to operate myself. The absolute fucking venom that he staples that donkey's head on with. You bugger ass. <laughs> and now I'm going to put them all on this piece of card so I can start them off on their journey. Off you go, Mary and Joseph. Off you go to Bethlehem. On British Airways, naturally. Business class. With a full production crew. <laughs> you shower of shite. <laughs> so then we finally get to a song. A song that we all had to endure... Uh, yeah. and I suppose enjoy written by Tyneside's finest Eric Boswell who wrote for Matt Munro, Shirley Bassey and James fucking Earl Adair <laughs> with his worst Cliff for American accent singing and I quote Little Donkey Little Donkey yeah. as in the supermarket yeah. And he also sings the bit at the end that was never used in schools because it involved a C7 chord, which most school guitarists couldn't play. There we go. That's that's why we have him on. Just boils my piss. I think this rendition of the song is absolutely fucking superb. Or at least it would be if the sound mixer hadn't put those fucking bells back in the mix. <laughs> Ring out those bells tonight, torn fucking deaf. <laughs> torn fucking deaf. You know. Bethlehem has changed a lot over the years. And when people arrive in Manger Square, they don't arrive on donkeys, but in cars and buses. Is that so? Because I'm old enough to remember three minutes ago when you told us... Out here in the country, people still use donkeys, and on roads like these, it's one of the best ways to travel. And then we head back to the studio, where, yeah, James has changed the backdrop to a night sky, and he's built the rest of Moss Isley, and it's looking fucking sweet, isn't it? Of course, these houses aren't made out of stone, they're made out of old shoeboxes. No shoebox is that shape. No shoebox is no. that fucking shape. Lies. Lies. And then James says, I've made a model of a Bethlehem street. James, you must be a fucking riot in the pub. So, so, I, got, <laughs> yeah. so I got these shoeboxes and I kind of cut a bit out of them and stuck them back together. Nobody will know. Nobody will know. Yeah. Help me, I want a friend. On the inside of every one of those shoeboxes, written in biro, it does say... Because there's no fucking money left after Captain Room Service there has ripped the absolute arse out of the production budget. <laughs> yep. Yep. And then he snaps, doesn't he? James, he just loses it. He breaks into this song, which I suspect is of his own fevered composing. A song which has it no isn't. melody and ignores all conventions of timing and indeed rhyming and features lyrics which comprise of about 14 different words just jumbled and repeated. It's a set audition piece for uh, Northeastern amateur drama groups, isn't it? <laughs> Have you ever felt lonely? Have you ever felt tired? Have you ever felt lost with no place to go? A song I forgot as he sang it <laughs> until the Eurovision key change, and then he did the double. 
Bloody D minor. Now, I'll tell you something. This has all the hallmarks of a 70s clip because um, he has to do the thing that they all do to try and make the song interesting, which is lop out half a bar to make it sound funky and original and interesting. But I can just imagine a row of bored kids out of class three at junior school having to sing this at Christmas. Uh, And it apparently only has five fucking notes in it and two chords. Now, a little bit of archival delving uh, found the repeat of the Watch Nativity specials from um, the other side of 1980, where there is an announcement at the end which says the songs in this um, programme have come from a school's musical called Follow the Star, or Follow the Cash-In, as I presume it's probably Ah. known now. Um, And... There is no credit for a composer. I have been... I've scoured the net, the Performing Rights Society, everywhere. There is a musical called Follow the Star, but this isn't it. And I suppose the composer and the lyricist made their excuses and left, and they said, well, give it Eric Boswell. He can have all the money. <laughs> yeah, while well, he's having his breakdown, we're back on location, and Louise's... Uh, the director's made Louise go into a cave with a donkey and a dozen sheep, so that's her smelling of shit until she's back at the hotel. And speaking of which, when they have a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, you know, they wrap it tight. Oh, it looks so content. It looks like a little parcel. Then it shits itself. Right. This is this is the thing, right? What is why is this program obsessed with the word swaddling clothes? It is, isn't it? There's yeah. a minute long segment, which is basically yes. a visual guide to mummifying a baby. The yes, only sir. advantage <laughs> to this many layers is when it shits itself. It's about five more minutes before you notice, but then it's going to take you 15 minutes to get it all back off again, and I dread to think of the state of it by then. It looked like a burst kebab. (laughs) Right? And then, of course, we're back to the studio, and James has made a flock of sheep in Uh the studio. He has. Yeah, he's he's putting some bit about a wolf, which I don't recall ever hearing before. Do you know what it is? I think he's inhaling the frankincense, which we'll come to in a minute. And have you noticed how Mm -hmm. the sheep, the wise men... Uh, Joseph and Mary, fucking all of them, because of being stuck to card, they all appear to be travelling on airport travelators. They do. We meet the shepherds with 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 a knife. Uh huh. Oh yes. The the shepherd yeah. has a knife. Now is this his mood? Yes. Channeling <laughs> into yes. his artwork. It, it absolutely is. This this shepherd's <laughs> got a knife. He'd he'd need that as a as a, a thing when he's looking after the sheep in case some twine needs cutting. Or a wolf needs cutting. That that's lovely, James. Yes. Why have you given the shepherd a gun? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it's he's turned this into some kind of Dungeons and Dragons game. Oh, oh well, I see. You've yeah. given this shepherd. Uh, what's that? Two return tickets to Bethlehem. Two return tickets. I see. Right. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> but the fact is, his mind starts to get really distorted at this point because when the cameras are off, when he's turned the cameras off himself and the video and stopped the videotape, he goes. There, there, Bernard, don't you worry. He's talking to the fucking sheep. They've all got names. (laughs) And then it's basically just James making it up. It was true what the voices told us. And straight away, the shepherds ran off down the street, knocking on all the doors and telling everyone of the wonderful things they'd seen. Clap your hands, they shouted. Clap your hands and be cheery. Right, hang the fuck on. What? Is this in all versions of the Nativity? And I've just missed it. An ecclesiastical game of knocking nine doors. It's gone fucking midnight, man. They turn into some kind of gospel choir. It is frankly insane. But but then in comes the song, Clap Your Hands and Be Cheery, a song for which nobody takes a credit. And is it any wonder when you hear it? I mean, the thing is, it just ends like that'll do. It really is a case of that'll do. And to top even that... Here comes the killer line at the end of part one of the story of the nativity when he says... And that's how Jesus was born. Hang the fuck on. Isn't there kind of another bit to this story? (laughs) Then a bit of sunburst from the camera and we're off into part two. Yes, we really are. Before part two begins properly, can we take a moment to enjoy the absolute fuck out of the music that BBC Two used to play when a programme wasn't quite ready to start? And in we go. We finally get there to part two, uh, where Louise is giving us a little recap. Oh, last week, thing is, 
in a child's mind who's sitting watching this, they're looking at Louise sat there in the same clairs. Uh, I, I know for a fact stinking. that I would be sitting there thinking, you must be lifting. You haven't changed your clothes in seven days in a hot country. You want to get in the bath? You want to get in the bath and get a new blouse on? That's shocking. That's no example to kids, that. So another thing which is not watch-specific, but since they bring it up... Were the other three, we've done the shepherds, were the other three wise men or were they kings? Now, I'm not saying these dudes can't be both, but it all feels very sketched in for a story that's supposed to be important, doesn't it? You know, it's like conflicting mm-hmm. witness statements. It, this is the sort of thing that gets cases thrown out of court. My, you know what I mean? my major concern was the actual um, cutout that uh, James has made back in the studio of Melchior, because Mel- yes, Melchior I, yeah. looks like he's sat on a fork. He looks very, yeah. very surprised. <laughs> he looks very—he looks alarmed. He looks very alarmed. Whoever's designed that is a genius. Well, you've got to bear in mind how fatigued they all are. I've made some wise men of my own, but they've been travelling for rather a long time now, so I think they could do with a bit of a rest. Unlike me, I've only been outside of Zone 2 to go to my bedside in Wanstead. No travelling for James, got to save money. Another point comes in at this uh, stage, gentlemen, which is yet another song. And another song with a, a, you know, uncredited because the, you know, the the composers dropped their garden ran for the hills, not the hills in Bethlehem either. This is a song called Follow the Star, which manages possibly one of the most devastating linguistic car crashes of the century, where they use the word fair to rhyme with myrrh. Yeah. Now, excuse me. And the thing is, they only have about one and a half fucking songs in this part. And this song takes up, you know, about half of the episode being sung again and again. And the more they rhymed it, or attempted to rhyme it, the the more my rile got up. I just have to tell you. Couldn't carry on. <laughs> tell mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, following a star is all very well as a navigational technique, but they're basically going at walking speed, and I don't think anyone's really taken into account the rotation of the Earth. Yeah. They're just going to be walking around in circles, aren't they? It's... Well, at this point, at this point, isn't it flat though? Ah, oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, it'd be fine, wouldn't ah, it? Yeah. Yes, it just gets point. dark good and everything yeah. stays in the same place. Yeah, that's fine. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did. Yeah, it did. Now, I just want to backtrack a little bit to the wise men stroke kings. Yeah. And the fact that Melchior had the present of frankincense, and here's some frankincense. It comes from the inside of trees, and it's something that you burn to make the air smell nice. Yes, James, I think I know something else you can burn to make the air smell nice, and I think you've been on it. <laughs> huh? Was it growing in the Blue Peter Garden by any chance, which is the other thing you had the keys for? Yeah, I'm like, hang on, frankincense and myrrh are precious things, and they can afford some of that in the studio. The budget went on half a pound of frankincense and four rocks of myrrh. Meanwhile, James has got to wear the same shirt he had on last week. No wonder he's fucking fuming. <laughs> uh-huh. Exactly. Uh-huh. So the story's more or less done at this point. So we just start going into the biological makeup of camels in lieu of any theological insight, don't we? So camels are ideal for the dry, dusty desert, and they're also very strong. One camel could carry a whole class of you on its back. I don't know, Louise. There were like 30 kids in my class. How big do you think these animals are? It sounds like there'll there'll be a lot of balancing involved. Has anyone signed off the risk assessment on this? Do not encourage this behaviour, Louise, really. But I'll tell you this, the thing that gets me about these episodes is they have to put in a word every time. They have to put in a captioned word in that revolting BBC 1970s letter mm-hmm. set. And for the camel, they use the word hump. Now, please, <laughs> you know, we know it's called a hump. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not. They're having a good time. They're not that young. I'm sure they are, uh, which Louise probably is as well, because um, I think she should have worn some trousers to get on the camel, if I'm honest. Do you think it's easy to stay on a camel? <laughs> well, I know, love, literally just now, you were willing to watch a bunch of kids hanging on for dear life, sir. I'm rocking up and down. It's a bit like being on a ship. Is it, Louise? Because it looks a bit more like being on a donkey. Did you mean donkey? Say donkey. Anyway, then we cut to about five minutes later, which has already had to get off once to be sick, and... Well, I think I've had enough now. Haven't we all, dear? Haven't we? Yes, quite. Yes. Well, that was my first camel ride, and I can tell you it's not very comfortable. So I can just imagine what it must have been like for the three wise men. Doesn't it seem a bit odd, in a programme about the Christmas story, that she's not empathising with a pregnant woman who had to ride over rubble for five days on a donkey? (laughs) That she literally described in the previous episode. Fucking hell, Louise. And interestingly, when they go to modern-day Bethlehem, 
Um, I was noting the donkey, which had the best fucking fringe in the entire series. <laughs> They've put in an extra bit at the end of the story where, like, the shepherds... Oh, like, a, like, like at the end of a Marvel film, when well, they drop a trailer. It's something like that, because they, sort of, they go into, like... James goes into completely the next chapter. The, um, the shepherds were out being a gospel choir in the streets. All the wise men have done is found King Herod and grasped up the baby Jesus. Is that right? <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Mind yeah. it says that it took them two weeks to get there. Are Mary and Jesus still around at this point? Don't they have a home to go to? And in the middle of the night, the wise men rose up and left. And so too did Joseph and Mary, for they also had a warning from the angel to run away. Would you like to know what became of them all? Well, at the time of recording, this was about 2,000 years ago, Louise, I imagine they all died. <laughs> Right. And then, yeah, it's all kind of pulled together quite quickly. Um, King Herod dies, the Christs go home, that's the end. So I think our star has guided us to our stable, gentlemen. Um, well, oh, watch. Thoughts. I'm going to put five pegs on the stable door for this. Five, all right. You... And that is charitable, um, because I think this is going to be a recurring theme for all the things we've been watching, is that they were better to me then they were a warmer more intimate engaging world than we currently live in that's, you do know um, that's what our entire podcast is about right and despite all of that um louise hall taylor and i still think she's gorgeous and i also still think that you know the the gaps in the story don't really help but then the music doesn't help either and then to a certain extent neither does a load of folded card Five out of nine. There you go. That's fair. That's fair. Five out of nine. Mr Blackout. Well, I've got to admit that as much as I've confirmed my already booked ticket for hell tonight, I do think that Watch is conceived, structured and presented pretty much perfectly for its audience. It's a little proper at times, but this is the BBC and that's what the baby Jesus would expect. Seven out of nine. How about yourself? I don't feel as guilty now uh, with, with mine uh, because, I mean, this is described as an infant miscellany series. That's what the BBC bills this as. It is television speak for any old shite that the kids will sit and watch instead of doing maths. But that being said, yep. <laughs> it's bang on. I loved watching Watch as a kid. So it hard. Well, excellent. I'll tell you what, Dean, listener, you will not have been expecting that score if you could hear all the stuff that's been cut out of this episode. That, that's absolutely <laughs> right. That is. And that's why this episode is, in fact, 40, 47 seconds long. <laughs> that's... that's but the important question, the one that we've been getting faxes about, is how many steps, Aussie Bognops, would it take you to yodel up the Christmas mountain? Well, it'll actually take me two <gasps> steps. <laughs> Watch is co-presented by James Earl Adair, who rocked up in a 1975 episode of The Benny Hill Show, next to Henry McGee who was in the film Sailor Beware with Peggy Mount. Me, me, oh, and some mistletoe, you never know you like. Beautiful. Very Nicely good. done. Very good. Yes. Very tight. And how about you, Dr Velvet? Well, also in two. Watch is co-presented by Louise Holt-Taylor, who appeared in a 1985 episode of Cat's Eyes, alongside Peter Vaughan, who starred in Spice Island Farewell with... Hanging on! It's quite simple. A £20 turkey, fresh, not frozen. Hurrah! Strong. Spice Island Farewell. Spice Island Farewell. There you go. Available in Iraq near you. Absolutely that, yes. And Mr Blackout, <laughs> what about your good selves, sir? I can also do it in two. This episode of Watch was produced by Tom Stanier, who also turned out an episode of Scene in 1969 titled The Beauty Business, which was presented by Michael Aspel, who also helmed a couple of episodes of This Is Your Life, which featured... Peggy Mount. In my room, and Miss Milton came in with a Christmas list, and oh, never mind. Blistering, blistering, sir. Blistering. Absolutely, absolutely. By the way, can I just point out, actually, that you can buy 
and Bognops, you'll know this, watch the soundtrack album by BBC Records, and it includes all the songs from these two episodes and more, including You Can't Come In. Um, so I need that. So, listener, if you have that, I need that. That's that for the first half. So from watch to listen, as we hear what's available for the Christmas things. Theatre presents Cinderella, starring Windsor Davis and Melvin Hayes. Tickets from Rushworth, Whitechapel, Liverpool. Phone 051 709 6699. Have a cracking Christmas at Woolworth. Cracker of a Christmas shopping spree. I'm Bernard Matthews, and I believe this is the juiciest, tenderest turkey you can give your family this Christmas. Golden Norfolk from Matthews Norfolk Farms. Beautiful. The Liverpool Empire proudly presents Dig Whittington. Starring Little and Large. Hey, that's us. And Roland Rat. Oh, that's me. And it's on until January the 31st. So book now. Yeah. Ah, the Christmas things. I've missed those. I miss looking through the toy catalogue going up to Christmas to look at the Christmas things. Do you chaps feel the same? Yeah. The catalogues mm. were always a great source of uh, solace to a young boy, especially the other pages. But also the pages with the toys on them. Yes. It was marvellous. What's that? What's Blackout? Oh, the letterbox, mate. Letterbox. The letterbox. Got it. Got it. Why don't people know? There's a let. There's a sign outside. Ken, is there a sign outside? No, it's the. Um, he's, sh- he's shaking his head. It's the, it's the post. You got to bear in mind we are recording this very early. It's four p.m. Um, I suppose. Yeah. What are we? Oh, it's a, it's a Christmas card. Right, hang on. Oh. Okay, but, is is that the first? Yeah. Uh, right, hang on. Oh, oh, it lights up as well. Nice. There's a novelty. Right. Dear boys. Happy Christ Moon from the timeline where reanimated Hitler is still world president and everything is better over there because all six series of the tripods got made. Later losers, Ray Bradburn, is that? Come on. I'll stick it up on the side. Thank you, whoever you are. Put it up. Yeah, it's good. That's good. All right. Oh, I feel even more Christmassy now. Yes, I, I do. It gives me such a warm feeling to get the first Christmas card of the season. It really does. Especially as... It is typically cold outside. So, listener, I invite you to throw another log on the fire and relax in the splendour of late 1970s rural England as we meet one lady who can rock a quilted body warmer because, of course, she's to the manor born. To the Manor Born was a very successful sitcom created for BBC One by Peter Spence in 1979, which ran for three series and 21 episodes. It stars Penelope Keith as Audrey Forbes Hamilton, an upper-class country lady who was forced to sell off the country estate after the death of her husband. This is bought by Peter Ball's Richard Devere, a nouveau-riche supermarket chain owner. Audrey moves into the lodge house where she can keep an eye on the old place, assisted by her friend Marjorie, played by Angela Thorne, while Richard moves his elderly Czechoslovakian mother, played by Daphne Hurdin, to keep him company. It is from this farcical melting pot that class tension, sexual tension, and thus comedy arises. The episode we've watched is the first Noel, broadcast at 8pm on Christmas Day in 1979. When the rector of the parish church points out that the nativity display traditionally comes from the manor each year, pride and confusion clash over exactly who should be providing it. Oh shit. <laughs> what's, your, what's your problem? Well, it's, it's a manor. I, I, I mean... I'm going to say that uh, my greatest issue with this, knowing that I am addressing one of the the series' biggest fans, is... Good morning. Yes, that um, back in the day, 
uh-huh. as a family, we used to sit down and watch this and enjoy yep, yep. its kind of gentle yep, cowslip agreed. wine humour. Mm-hmm. And now I watch it and think, this is the Penelope Keith Ego show. Basically, she's per- playing Margot Ledbetter, only five times bigger and 25 million times more sardonic. Um, See? With, a, with a script that appears to be palmed off or on the buses and shifted into the upper class. I don't see Margot Ledbetter here at all. I don't, and that, that's why I enjoy it so much. I tip my hat to Penny on this. I don't see Margot here. Penelope, I if you're listening, we're sorry. I absolutely buy. I'm not. That, she, that she's this, that she is this character. I never see Margot at all. Never made that connection, ever. I've always said that about this. I'll tell you what I did do. I'll tell you what I did do. I'll tell you how much I do like this series. The tattoo? When I was younger, when I, not the tattoo, that came later. When I was younger, when I was younger, I used to make the Manor House out of Lego. I was obsessed with making Grantley Manor out of Lego. Well, you see, that's, the, and I'm with you on that for the simple reason that the photographs that they used as the Rostrum camera thing for the opening titles, um, it's a beautiful house. It's a really beautiful house. Peter it's, Spence lived in it. Did he? The the writer lived in it. Yeah. What the hell had he been writing the fucking Queen's speech? I think it was either his uncle's house or whatever, but he lived in it. Absolutely. So, yeah. Which is why you've never heard of him writing anything else, because that's all he knew about. Manners and borns. He can only write something that's... Posh? Set in a, man, in a manor house. Right. Essentially, that, that manor house. <laughs> so, that's why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, really. Anyway, I mean... Oh, the laughs make me squirm because I can't work out just how much of it is um, pressing the button on the tape and how much actually is a studio audience. Oh, BBC it's never tend to audience. push the button. Well, yeah, but some of it you almost hear the drop-in sound after a <laughs> fairly weak line. I mean, I know yeah, we've got okay. other programs in this uh, out uh, this uh, series. To, to talk about fucking applause buttons but uh, and, and laughter buttons. But this, I'm just very disappointed because I thought I would enjoy this more. Well, before we get stuck in, bearing in mind we have already got stuck in, before we even get the first line of dialogue... Yep. Ronnie Hazelhurst has done this for To The Manor Born in The BBC have asked him to do Yes Minister, and he's turned around with this. The producer's got to be like, Ronnie man, you've just played Audrey's theme backwards and put a wah-wah pedal on it. Well, no, right. I, suppose, I suppose it'll have to do, because the programme goes out at nine o'clock tonight. That's well, fucking yes, outrageous. Yes. I'd also like to drop in a little musical comment here as well. For Eurovision Song Contest fans, if you watch the 1977 Eurovision Song Contest, the opening credits from Wembley Conference Centre, it starts with an overhead shot of Westminster. Ronnie Hazelhurst manages to shoehorn in to the manor born fucking yet again anything to get his PRS up. Good evening. This is Pete Murray welcoming you to the Eurovision Song Contest 1977. As the orchestra play the overture, we'll take an aerial glimpse of the United Kingdom. Big Ben showing the time of just after nine o'clock. How come it's daylight? Well, that's another BBC miracle. Big Ben was named after Sir Benjamin Hall, Commissioner of Works, when the bell was first hung. The Houses of Parliament, also known as the Palace of Westminster, with the House of Lords containing just over a thousand members. Sorry, Ron. <laughs> it's there. They are they so are. similar. They are. Cannot be denied. Cannot be denied. The, ti- the, the visuals, though, in the titles, they're, they're appropriate. They're subtle. Yeah, yeah. And they, they, they nod to the characters quite nicely, I think. Yeah. Uh, and it, they, just, they just get on with it and they do set the scene. Question for you, though. For the time... Back in 79, is this horrendously out of place for the man on the street? Or is it escapist and aspirational? I mean, who is this aimed at? I think it's more towards the second one. It's not like... Because basically, the commoner, if you like, 
is Richard Devere, isn't it? He's not really a commoner, though. He's still like a successful businessman. Mm-hmm. But he's definitely played in this entire scenario to be the normal one out of the entire bunch. He's just trying to crack on. He's bought a big house. He's just trying to enjoy his wealth. That's what any of us would do in that situation, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'm not necessarily posited as aspirational, but I think it's definitely accessible enough for the man on the street to watch, yeah. I agree. I mean, it's possibly indicative of BBC comedy at the time. It was going through a transitional period from, you know, a bit of anarchy with, you know, uh, the anarchy of Till Death Has Do Part, Steptoe and Son, things like that in the 60s, through uh, through to a calmer, more balanced set of parameters in the 70s, um, you know, last of the summer wine, two Ronnies, um, you know, last of the summer um, to the man of born, all those sort of things, on into the eighties. So it it is actually so a softening up a little bit. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. so. This is this, there's a lot of money talk in this. There's an awful lot of money talk, and we all hear about um, the money fueled cash grabbing eighties, and we're entering into that sort of era. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like we're being prepped for that. Um, but speaking of softening, uh. I I want Audrey's velvet curtains from the lodge. They're absolutely <laughs> beautiful. Oh, before we even get to the lodge, we open with a scene in their local church. Yes. And about five seconds in, my brain goes, oh, good, everything's recorded on one fucking microphone here, which Again. is on the far side of the room, in yes. a tiled alcove. Fantastic. And yeah. I am actually going to go um, a stage further with that later on, but I'm going to start by saying... Clearly, there was no budget for this series at this point because later on, there were outside shots, outdoor shots on film. There should have been a budget by now because this was made in between series one and two. This isn't like the last episode of series one. This was a special where they've got them all back before they've done series two. They know by this point how successful it is. They should be throwing money at it. Yeah, which clearly then... Well, they're not throwing money at filming. I get that. They're absolutely not. Yeah. Well, they did location shoots right from the start. There's lots of them in Series 1. Right. So why on earth in the Christmas special, which you would expect to be balls out for, you know, the festive season, your glamorous entertainment on BBC One? I think they got about two months' notice. Yeah, I I get the impression this is very much made on the fly. Lads, we're a hit. Get this together. Mm-hmm. I reckon that's what that is. Mm-hmm. Well, so much so that Bramger wasn't even fucking in it. He was ill. He was the actor was ill, um, so they they um, they brought in, of course, Ned, and I yes. do love old Ned. I loved Brabinger as well, um, but uh, yeah, the actor was ill. Brabinger I liked because he was just a manservant, a butler. Ned's trying to make a comedy role out of it, and you can tell he's reading his words off boards because whenever he looks at somebody, he looks over their shoulder. Yes, probably. Well, he's, a, he's of an age, but uh, it's I don't know. He um, he works because he is. The commoner in... Because uh, Brabinger's very much part of the establishment. Yeah. Ned Ned just isn't. And therein lies the comedy, isn't it? So, I suppose yeah. I mean, it's, it's, Well, I love it's, how Ned brings a... that stable in for the Christmas diorama. And it's uh-huh. an absolutely fucking outstanding piece of work. And then he fluffs his line on camera and the director yeah, can't even be bothered to retake it. Oh, dear. <laughs> you've made the figures too big, Mrs. Too big, Mrs. Forbes. You mean you've made the stable too small? He just, like, redoes half of his own line for no fucking reason. Mm-hmm. It would have worked the way he was reading it the first time. Anyway. To be fair, um, that's not the first time that happens because uh, okay. we get something before that where Marjorie, she comes in over Penny Keith's line. If I can get through this first Christmas without undue trauma, it'll be a feat of moral courage that will keep me going for the rest of the year. I should just resign myself to spending a very boring Christmas here all alone. I suppose one shouldn't desert one's friends. Yes. And they don't retake it. We've got two, the, you know, the two consummate professionals here, and they do just carry on. Mm-hmm. They handle yeah. it, but there is no retake. And it's interesting that. There's no retake there, but near the beginning, where he's got a circuit breaker to make the tree lights flash, she, uh, Penny Keith says, is this wise? Edit. And you can hear it. So, you know, are they really on the fly with this or are they sort of on the fly, like, practically making the fucking thing up? I do like a good comedy Christmas tree lights not working joke. Brackets, yeah, trademark. Is, it's half an hour of it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It's basically, this is a half-hour prop gag. I'll tell you what they are doing really well in here. 
Um, very progressive and absolutely unheard of at the time. First, the parish notices about our Christmas activities. This week, as you know, we had the Christmas collection for old people of the parish. They've got an old lady as the vicar. An old lady who has exactly the same voice as Penelope Keith. Win! I, th- I thought my copy of this was playing on 45. What is with, <laughs> what is with Gerald Sims' voice? Stereotypical vicar in the 70s. They all have a very... Uh, yeah, they're very ecclesiastical like that all voice. The time. Yes, absolutely. They all yes. came from this I... corner of the country. So we're yeah. back in the lodge. We are yeah. back in the lodge. There's one particular scene where the long case clock that mm-hmm. Audrey's got in the um, in her hallway is sort of like a deep red. Mm-hmm. Other than the red on that clock... The scene where she comes in and she takes her jacket off. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen a sitcom more beige than this? Absolutely. Every, no. Everything no, absolutely. within that frame is like it's yeah. like been made out of brown fuzzy felt. It's yeah. glorious in its own way. I have a feeling there was an actually a fuzzy felt to the man born made. I'm sure there must have been. <laughs> what her her jacket and, and her jacket and Marjorie's hair. I mean, I'm telling you now, listener, if you come across this on the eBay's or anything like that, you 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 send that to yes. us here. You send that to us at Mount Peg Towers because I, I'm telling you, I would I would sell a kidney for a to the man born fuzzy yeah. felt set. That's incredible. But felt suede, um, velvet. I mean, Peter Balls. A man's man. I mean, the word dapper in the dictionary, it says, see Peter Balls. Uh-huh. Yeah. It is. It is beige, beige, beige. But that's, you know, late 70s. That's, this is... And yeah, I cannot mm. imagine any of these characters existing in any other colour palette. It's I absolutely agree. in keeping absolutely. with it. it yeah. You know. I'm with you. That, yeah, I'm with you with that. Absolutely. Even the that. magazines yeah. that are on the coffee table are brown. <laughs> yeah. And whilst we're on the subject of brown um, and beige, more to the point... Um, by complete contrast, balls in a green velvet dinner jacket, absolutely mm-hmm. carrying it off. Yeah. I tell you now, I've looked everywhere for a similar green velvet jacket. Can't find one anywhere. Listener, if you know of one, let me know. Anyway, Bognops, as you were. Now, yes, all right, I did say that this is the, you know, it's a half hour setup for a visual gag, which you know is mm. coming from the moment. It's even you, the moment you see uh, Devere's crib set up in the church, you know it's coming. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. There are, there's a lot of time wasted in this episode, like putting the lights on in the church. Just mm-hmm. feels like yeah. it, it's not even funny. Filler. Yeah, totally filler. You both know my feelings on farce, and they've introduced a farcical element, albeit yep. brief, yep. into this. And now I love arts and crafts and buggering about with glitter and stuff like that. Um, the confusion about the conflicting size of the nativity figures and the stable and then the animals. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's no basic communication here from Audrey. I would be absolutely furious. Absolutely furious. No, apart from anything else, it doesn't matter. When it's oh, they're a slightly different scale, it doesn't matter. For what you're doing, you're not playing with them. It's literally just going to be a display. People will go, Well, there is the shed. There are the family. That's fine. Let's move on. Yeah. Unless yeah. you're, unless you've got like a, a 1983 Kenner speeder bike and you're trying to fit an action man on it, it's not going to matter, mate. It doesn't. Matter. You'd use action force figures, wouldn't you? It's fine. Just move on, Penelope. Yeah. Audrey, you're clacking on over nothing. Leave it. The shed <laughs> is much, much better than what you've built anyway. Go with the fucking scale of the shed. Well, she she clearly hasn't watched watch. <laughs> yep. Yep. So she's no, she got no, the cardboard out. There's no folded cardboard in this. Oh, no. You're right. No, no, no. But you see, this is the point. This is why she can't leave it alone. Audrey is obsessed and, may I say, ruthlessly manipulative. Yes, totally. Mm -hmm. And that's that's also another bit of considerable padding in this about how she's the best at everything and how she was the judge in the competition to judge the animals and she won. And things like that. It's just, it's filler. The setups just feel very stilted. But I do think because Audrey's got Marjorie as her sounding board... So yeah. she can tell the audience about all of this. Mm-hmm. While she is slightly sociopathic, it's always right out there on Front Street. So you're there with her. She's not, you know, pulling oh, the yes. rug out, going, yeah. ah, and yes, also that's got arsenic in it. Ah, twat. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we sort of like the character because we're with the character all the time. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, true. 
True, true. Again, just like switching the church lights on, Devia's pager goes off. This yes. is another example of this programme pushing wealth and progression. Yes. And I've got a bit about that. Were there pages in 1979? I mean, clearly yes, they didn't yes. make up the concept of pages. Parliamentarians had them, doctors had them. They were a, oh, okay. a staple part of late 70s telly okay, where okay. wealth was um, displayed, right. for sure. The, uh, I don't think back in the day they had the LCD display. It was no, literally a beep to That's say right. go to a telephone and right. dial in at the office. OK, OK. So what you're saying is that To The Man Born was actually hip and cutting edge after all? Yeah, I am. OK. But it was also trying to, I guess, present an image of upper-class establishment versus yes. upper-class aristocracy and yes. thus something that we couldn't aspire to and not even middle-class aspiring assholes from anywhere else in the world could, could get. But, you know, people sitting at home actually watching this particular programme at this time, on this day, were entertained. Well, I will describe it as potentially elitist. Yeah. But but at the same time, it's cosy and it's gentle. Yeah. Now, that's the word I've got, because to bring it back to watching this now, it is gentle, isn't it? It's got all the pacing of a comedy, just no jokes for the most part. The Indeed. characters are superb here, as is the cast... And every time they have to read out one of those little scripted witticisms in their various two-handers, you can just see them grimacing, wishing they'd not signed on for this long. It's yeah. painful to watch. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just one series by this point as well, so yeah, yeah, um, that's quite a worry. And then at the end, uh, you know, waiting for the David Croft-style um, big visual gag to, you know, the, the crib explodes and all the rest of it, Ned having caught, fixed everything up. It is kind of a golf ball on the tee for the lamest climax in the church. And it is a bit like Terry Scott being knocked out by a toilet. It's that. It's, it's not also, as good as that. This, this smacks of the obligatory prop from Are You Being Served, the prop explosion. And right. you know yeah. they've gone to BBC special effects. I know you've just done pussy boots, but will you just knock us up a nativity with an explosion? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they've just they've, they've shoehorned that in. Can I just point something out? The upper classes are not obsessed with having the latest thing. If they have, uh, I don't know, for example, a suitcase um, and they've had it for 45 years and it's just tat with a handle, they'll still use it. Why spend money unnecessarily, right? Yeah. Does Audrey keep her telly in the shithouse outside? <laughs> because we get a look at the back of it... And it's up to the eyes and clots. <laughs> now, I'm wondering whether this is just uh, uh, props have fucked up here or that's attention to detail. I'd prefer if it was the latter. It's attention to detail. It's This is in the countryside where everything is covered in shit. Yeah, so, you know, fair I said whole shit at the beginning and you didn't take any fucking notice of us. <laughs> that's you what I was getting at. I was oh, definitely talking Fair enough, about that. fair enough then. Fair enough. Called fair use, right. I believe. Um, I have another point. Uh, Mr Blackout, what year was this? Actually, both of you, what year was this? 79. 79. 79, BBC Strike Territory. They could put any crap out and this it would get an right audience. This feels about right, Because when, when Richard DeVere works out that he's upset Audrey with his flashy crib and he goes back into the church to remove it, it all just feels very clunkily put together, like the first draft of a farce written yeah. by someone who's heard of a farce but has never seen one. You know, none of it's coming together. It's, it's, it's more an idea that has then been turned into a script rather than actually developed. For something that went out in a prime slot on Christmas Day, this is unforgivably weak. I tend to find that most Christmas specials are. It got its place because of the name that was already attached to it, not because of the yeah. script that had been handed in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that, yes. Mr Blackout, I will um, ask you this. Um, this programme has a connection with a show that we've recently looked at. It has a connection with Duty Free. Do you know what that is? No. BBC used to like to do little audio adaptations of their sitcoms, and they'd select certain episodes. So they did a few of To The Manor Born. However, Peter Bowles wasn't available. So who played Richard DeVere? It was indeed Keith Barron. Keith Barron. So we get to the big setup, the church, the day, the consecration of the crib, and yep. it starts with the procession of a choir. Is this yes. fucking Westminster Cathedral's choir? There's more people in the <laughs> choir than there are in the congregation. Yeah. You're right. You're right. I wondered about this. Yes, yes. 
And, you know, clearly, clearly not practical choristers because they didn't have to sing, but clearly they very clearly were not choristers because none of them appeared to be able to walk. And by that, I'm insinuating that they all look at their feet and they've clearly been told, you have to hit this mark, you have to hit that mark. And it's quite obvious that they've not actually rehearsed this. They've just been said, all right, go and process, do what choirs do, apart from mm-hmm. sing, mm-hmm. because we'll have to pay you more money for it. Looking at your boots to music, me and Blackout did that for years in goth clubs. So it, 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 <laughs> True. It, it, has its, it has its place. It has its place. I had you actually know. been a chorister in a former life for a short time and had to process with a candle with a piece of white card. That's fine until you stand next to the tree and nearly set fire to the bloody thing. Is there any footage of this on VHS? Thankfully not. And then it all sort of clicks into place. Mm-hmm. This episode does not pick up until two minutes before the end, when the four main characters finally spend more than 15 seconds in each other's company. And yeah. you know what? That's what's been going wrong for half a bastard hour. True. Absolutely 100%. And I guess part of the... The other thing is what Jimmy Perry and David Croft used to call quality time, which you can have on the BBC because it's cut out on ITV because of the commercials. So mm. the commercials hark at me. Ah, I remember the 50s. But... um it's just they've got this time and all of a sudden you've got this tiny little microcosm of uh, Penelope keep losing it. You know, oh, it's not right. I miss it. I miss all of this. All of... Where's this going? This could spiral into something fabulous and fascinating, but it doesn't. Straight out into the cheap laugh and they're all on at the end and then curtain titles home. That's it. Good Lord, to the manor born, gentlemen. My goodness me. Mr Blackout, how many pegs are you going to pin? upon Audrey's velvet curtains. Well, this might be packed to the rafters with festive references, but for me it doesn't come off like a Christmas special. It feels like a sitcom which has forgotten why it started. Claustrophobic, impatient, yet somehow bored. Three out of nine. Absolutely disgusting. Bognops? <laughs> well, you're going to love this one then, Doctor. Um, I'm in total agreement with Blackout in so far as, you know, this feels like it's essentially a sitcom script with some Christmas things placed into it, a very, very weak prop gag, and yes, all right, it might have been done on the hoof because of the success of the series, but it just doesn't quite come off for me. Two out of nine. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> here we go. So, Dr Velvet, where are you going to put your nine pegs? I'm going to put them on the stable. Thank you very much. Yes, <laughs> shining nine pegs. <laughs> yep. yep. Of course. Perfect Christmas viewing. Thank you very much indeed. Your scoring is every bit <laughs> as dull and predictable as this episode. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> However, just like this episode, it is correct. <laughs> oh, but the question on everyone's lips that are sat there in the congregation of Grantley Church is how many steps will it take you, Blackout? to reach the nativity scene. Well, I can do it in four. <laughs> to the Manor Born stars Angela Thorne, who is a major component in BBC's Three Up, Two Down, along with Michael Elphick, who shone under his own star in Boone, next to David Dacre, whose rod of iron we saw in Dick Turpin in the company of... Christopher Benjamin, who starred, of course, in the 1994 episode of The Tomorrow People with... Peggy Mount. Now, does everybody understand the rules? That is an extraordinary journey, Blackout. An extraordinary journey. It really journey. is. You must be ah. knackered. Sit down, have a, have yeah. a mince pie. Have a mince pie. <laughs> Dr Velvet, what about yourself? Would you join me? I'll join you, but I'll do it in three. Born stars Daphne Hurd, who spent 1977 in four episodes of Doctor Who, alongside Louise Jameson, who appeared in 2013's The Tractate Midoff, next to Roy Barraclough, who cropped up in the Decorators Limited episode of The Chiffy Kids, with Hanging on Three long straws and one short straw. Fantabulous. Fantabulous. Better, better. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Ozzy, can you beat? Well, I rather think I can. I can do this in two. Oof. 
to the manor born stars none other than Penelope Keith, who was in The Good Life, of course, which featured one Charmian May, who was nominally in charge of Paradise Lodge, and Peggy Mack. You did it last year and spilled egg flip all the way down the front of the costume. Nice. He's got a class that boy. Expertly done. Expertly done. Very good. Very good indeed. So, that's it. One cracker pulled from our tinsel-clad trio of trees of televisual treats. Or something. But before I dive headlong into a skip-sized portion of you log, Blackout's got your socials. Yes, thanks once again for spending this special time with us. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email PeggyMountPod at gmail.com or we are at PeggyMountPod on Twitter. You can also find us by searching for the Peggy Mount Calamity Hour on the Facebook and don't forget to go to PeggyMountPod.com to check out the show notes for the episode. It's as simple as that. It really is. Thanks once again to Ozzy Bognops. You are staying for the for the, uh, for the the Christmas season, aren't you? Oh, Bob? yes, oh, indeed, because I fancy a game of sardines. In the cupboard under the stairs with Penelope Keith. Anything's possible. Could be Louise Hall Taylor. You never know. Now we all know with your look, it'll be Christopher Lillycrap and a bottle of Brasso. Right, oh. it's time to ride off into the <laughs> night on our jingle bell laden sleigh. We're back next week with two more boxes of reindeer dump to throw on your holly bush. Until then, <laughs> keep chasing! The Peggy Man Calamity Hour is a free podcast from iPol Media which holds production copyright. Opinions and recollections expressed are not to be taken as fact. The title and credit music is by Dr. Velvet. Audio segments from television programs are presented for review and informational purposes only under fair use, and no ownership of these is claimed or implied by this show. For more information, visit PeggyMountPod.com.